Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting live 
in your area. They're helping to promote the Apple Sea Project, helping you to get uh, new ranges, uh, helping with promotions and uh, passing PCs, shooting to rifleman standards, all of these things uh, that we ask folks to do uh, in the Apple Sea Project, which is a nationwide, all-volunteer, grassroots effort uh, directed into a not-for-profit organization dedicated to teaching the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program in the United States today, the absolute best, and at the same time, uh, letting folks know about their heritage, about uh, the events that started off this nation on April 19, 1775, who the folks were involved in that, what they did, why they did it, what the vision of the founders of this nation was for this nation. And and once we've talked to you about it, we'll leave it up to you to, uh, to decide if we're if we're uh, meeting the needs of those visions, because I, I don't think that we are a lot of times, and I think that folks have to be reminded that they have a they have a sacred responsibility to ensure that the freedoms and liberties that we enjoy by virtue of living in this nation, by being American citizens, that those freedoms and liberties do not disappear. Uh, <clears throat> there is a uh, there is a quote by Ronald Reagan, and I'll I'll have to pull it up. But uh, it, basically, what it says is is that the we didn't we don't pass. We, can, we don't pass these freedoms and liberties on uh, to our children in their in their bloodstream. Uh, the each generation has to take responsibility for ensuring that those freedoms and those liberties don't disappear. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make sure that this generation understands that, and that we can hand off a viable nation to those who will come after us, to our children our grandchildren, the millions of Americans that we'll never meet, all right? Uh, so uh, in the next few minutes, actually all through the show, you guys are welcome to call in at any point during the show. And uh, now I may not get to you uh, very quickly uh, if I'm in the middle of a, a discussion of the medicine or something up front. But uh, if you want to call in right now, then uh, you are more than welcome to, and we'll get your uh, your thanks on the air and out to the folks that it matters to. Uh, I've told you many times before that the Apple Seed Project is, uh, we're really good at what we do. We're really good at taking folks uh, all the way from, from any level of rifle marksmanship experience, from never having fired a rifle before and just uh, unwrapping it uh, getting it out of their trunk and unwrapping it to come down to the firing line, all the way to folks who are getting ready to ship out and head to uh, Marine Corps Sniper School or SWAT Sniper School, etc. We do an absolutely fantastic job at getting those folks uh, all on the same page with the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship. We do a fantastic job of opening up ranges around the nation. And we do a fantastic job of telling folks 
the story of April 19, 1775. Uh, one of the things that we're not so great at is telling the folks that are doing this, the folks in the organization, telling them thanks. Uh, I think that we could use a, uh, a lot more uh, help in that area. So that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do uh, every Thursday at uh, the beginning of the show is have you let you guys call in. And listen, there's also, uh, it's not just uh, for the thanks. I mean, that's one of the main reasons I do this. But there's also the, uh, uh, what we do with, uh, with helping to promote any kind of projects or commercial ventures that are going on with uh, other Appleseed uh, brothers and sisters. That is, if you have a commercial venture that you're trying to get off the ground or that you're running it now, then we want to help support you. We want to uh, we want to be we want to uh, to be uplifting to our Appleseed brothers and sisters. And uh, if you'll give me a call and let me know what it is you're doing and what you're trying to do, then we'll be glad to get it on the air. We've all, all, already got uh, quite a few folks. Uh, that we uh, give a nod to, uh, not, uh, and I say this for the benefit of Block Talk, not that we're getting a penny for doing it. We're just not selling any advertising. We're simply mentioning uh, the uh, uh, commercial ventures of our Appleseed brothers and sisters. We've got uh, uh, Blue Feather and Tiles Clock, fantastic handmade soap makers in New Mexico, and uh, uh, not just soap. I think they've got a bunch of other prod- products now. I'm, and uh, the uh, call screener, uh, I'm sure, can be uh, putting that information into the uh, chat for you guys that are following it. And I believe it's uh, Blue Feather, uh, bluefeather.biz or Blue Feather Hosting. I can't remember the, the exact. But if you just Google Blue Feather Soap, then you'll get it. They make... Uh, all different kinds of soap. They make all different kinds of. Uh, uh, let's see, what else are they making? They're making uh, shaving soap. I believe the call screener is using some of that. I don't know if they're making any kind of mustache wax or anything like that now, but I know that they make some fantastic soap, uh, handmade, and it's very inexpensive. So. If you need some handmade soap, contact the Blue Feather and Tile Scott or Google Blue Feather Soap and uh, and get some soap from an Appleseed brother or sister. Help support them and uh, and get a, a an, uh, an excellent high grade product at the same time. We've got uh, Jimmy. We've got Desert Eagle, who is uh, uh, I believe that he still has a uh, long term food storage uh, commercial venture where he is supplying commercial uh, long-term food to folks. And this, the food that he's selling is excellent food. It's not He's not making it in his back room. It's a, uh, He's a distributor for a well-known company. And uh, if you need some long-term food storage, some long-term storable food, which everybody does, then be sure and contact him and get yourself on the road uh to being prepared. We've had uh, plenty of folks on the program in the last year to speak to you about uh, prepping and uh, making sure you have food, water, other gear you need to survive, uh, any type of cessation of services or any type of a uh, natural 
disaster or calamities and stuff like that. <clears throat> so I shouldn't have to keep reminding you that it is your job as an Appleseed uh, member to be prepared in order to provide leadership for your community. All right? One of the ways you can do that is making sure that you are not starving. And the way that you make sure you're not starving is by having plenty of uh, food in your lard, uh, your larder, uh, long-term food, storable food. You can get that from uh, Desert Eagle Farms. Uh, we want to thank uh, Poker Face. That's the band that uh, that puts out the the music, the intro music that we, we use for the show. That particular piece is called Control with a K, K-O-N-T-R-O-L. Uh, but they make a lot of fantastic move, uh, music. They're not libertarians, but they're they're their own animal. But they uh, uh, they are the uh, uh, the most successful revolution rock band in uh, the United States today, and they they do a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, performances uh, all across the nation. Uh, they play at the uh, Knob Creek uh, events that they have. They're like machine gun shoots and the gatherings and stuff. And uh, they do a great job, and we certainly appreciate uh, them letting us use the music uh, for free for the for the show. And you can get a hold of them at PokerFace.com. They got a, a plenty of music there. Some of it uh, I think you can download for free. And uh, and then, of course, there's some that you can buy. And once again, you're going to be buying music from somewhere anyway. Buy some from somebody uh, that is not uh, <laughs> is not using the money to uh, to buy flags that they can burn on stage. Uh, all right, use uh, support the folks that uh, support the folks that you want to support. But uh, I'm not going to tell you who to support. You know who you want to support. I'm just saying I'd like to support folks like Poker Faith, all right? Uh, I can't remember. There's a, there is a, there is a, there's always a rotating list of folks that are asking us to, uh, to mention them uh, on uh, the air. And if you would like us to do so, then give us a call. You can shoot me an email. Or uh, or give me a call on the phone, and uh, or or just call in during the show and, and explain what you're doing. We'll be glad to get you on the air. Let me tell you guys too that uh, Jimmy, who uh, runs Desert Eagle Farms, and also Jimmy also does the Christmas for Our Troops program. Uh, for the last couple of years, they've been sending packages to thousands of American soldiers who are overseas at Christmas time. And if you've listened to any of these shows or any of the discussions that I've had with Jimmy uh, or, or any other time that I've talked about it, when you get something from home, when you're stationed overseas, uh, even if you're out in a fire base, in a foxhole in a fire base, you still get mail. They'll still have the, the choppers will come in. Uh, they'll come in bringing the, uh, the, uh, the containers of hot food and uh, sometimes some clean clothes and the packages of mail. And they'll have mail call, and when you hear your name, and you've got an envelope, uh, somebody's holding up an envelope with your name on it, 
um, let me tell you, it's one of the best feelings in the world. And it's the same thing with the with the Christmas for our troops program that uh, Jimmy and the rest of his buddies are running out of New Mexico. And uh, the and I'm not going to tell you that the, that the troops are over there, uh, you know, in dirty clothes without any uh, without any supplies or anything. Most of the troops are are fairly well supplied, but that doesn't matter. Uh, when you get something, when you get something with your name on it from home, it's a big deal. And I don't know how to explain it any better than than in some cases it can be the difference between life and death. Uh, I, I gotta tell you, you, your your mind will will get really strange on you when you're thousands of miles from home and your you, your life is on the line and you're troubled and you're worried and uh, you you know you, and you're scared. I'll say it. Uh, then uh, it's good to have something to anchor you back, and I want to. Thank Jimmy and the rest of the folks that are that are sending these packages to our troops. And uh, if you go to ChristmasForOurTroops dot uh, I think it's dot com, uh, if the call screener put it there in the in the chat. But if you go to that, you can read the letters from the folks who have gotten the uh, the packages and stuff. And it's some of the the best packages ever sent out by anybody. Uh, to the troops, and like I said, it means a great deal to them. Well, Jimmy needs our help again now, tonight, uh, not with the Christmas for our troops, but Jimmy's daughter is, she's very, very ill right now, and Jimmy needs our help, all right? If you, uh, if you're the type of person that believes that uh, that you can say a prayer for somebody and it means something, then I'd like for you to pray for for Jimmy's daughter. And call screener, if you could if you could uh, put it into either into my ear or into the the information board here on the switchboard, cause, uh, what her name is, so we can tell the folks uh, her name if you know it. Uh, then I'd like for you folks to. I'd like for you for to right now for you guys to do it. I mean, most of us, most of you guys are not listening uh, to the show in uh, the middle of a football stadium or anything else. Most of you are probably uh, in your home, just like uh, I am now. And, uh, and there's nothing at all that stops me from hitting a knee in my home, and I, I do it all the time. Uh, I completely believe in prayer. I believe it's very, very important part of your life as a uh, as a spiritual warrior and as a rifleman. Uh, and I'm not saying that uh, that anybody else has to for any reason. I'm just saying that I do, all right? Everybody's their own man. Everybody's their own woman. Everybody, can, everybody has the right to believe or not to believe anything in the world that they want to. I'm just telling you what I believe. And if you are the saved mind and uh, you believe that prayer matters, then... <clears throat> Then I would like you to uh, ask for uh, intercession on behalf of Amanda uh, Gensling. Amanda Gensling, and uh, if you just say a prayer for her, and uh, and ask for God to intercede, 
and uh, to bring her health, uh, to bring Jimmy relief from from his worries. Any any of you folks out there that are parents know that there is there is nothing more frightening in the world than something, uh, some illness or or danger that has befallen your children. There's nothing more frightening than that. Uh, I would I would gladly go up against a thousand Spetsnaz troops with a with a Swiss Army knife rather than see one of my children in a burn ward or or a cancer ward or anything like that. Uh, I would always I would always take whatever illness it or injury it is on myself rather than have them do it. So as a parent, you know that it's very very uh, Damaging to your uh, to your spirit to see one of your children sick. So please uh, please say a prayer for a man against All right. Uh, last uh, last week we we had a fellow on the show. Uh, if you guys were listening to the show last week, you heard it. Uh, it was Mr. Colorado, the gentleman from Colorado. He called uh, to discuss the Appleseed Project, and he was uh, one of these folks. He'd never heard of the Appleseed Project before. He had just come across the uh, uh, the logo, the show logo, I guess, on the blog talk page. And uh, you know, our logo is it's nothing. Uh, uh, it's nothing. Uh, as far as I can, when I look at it, I don't see anything controversial. It is a, it's the outline of an apple seed instructor with a shooting jacket, and he's got uh, an M14, and it's just a silhouette of him, and you can tell he's probably at the rain firing. And in the background is a radio tower, and it has uh, concentric circles uh, coming out from it, you know, indicating that uh, this is a radio show. And, uh, he found that very disturbing, the thing with the with the guns and and why why do conservatives all gotta have guns and why do conservatives all gotta do this and they all gotta do this and they all gotta they all they're all filled with hate and uh, and you know he and I talked for a while and certainly the the first thing you want to do is you you want to yell at the folks or you want to you want to hang up or. Uh, uh, you know, uh, do the thing. What does uh, Mark Levin say? Get off, get off the phone, dummy. That's like the the first thing that comes to your mind. But you know that that doesn't fix anything. And I think that uh, after we spoke for a little while, I, I'm not going to tell you that I convinced him of anything because I don't know that I that I did. Although I did speak to him for a while and invite him to come to an apple seed. Uh, Event that we would, uh, I'd be glad to pay his way to it there in Colorado. I haven't got an email from him yet, but I tell you what, we do have. We've got the uh, the call screener is uh, a slide dog, and he uh, he records the uh, the phone numbers for me and the folks. And we're not going to do it tonight. We'll give him another week to send me an email, and uh, and if he has by then, what we'll probably do is give him a call uh, next week. And 
and see where he is on this. All right, see where and why he, if he's ready to attend an apple seed. He was actually afraid uh, <laughs> last time we we were by the time we got off the phone. He said he was going to do it, but he did say he goes now. You guys aren't going to try uh, like hunting me down or something at the event, are you? And uh, uh, I assured him that we weren't, but. If he hasn't contacted me by next week, I'm trying to give him a call uh, this next week and and see if we can uh, figure out where he's at on this and see if we can get him to uh, attend an event. But I'll tell you one thing it did do is, uh, is it, uh, and of course I discussed this with a call screener afterwards, and one of the things that uh, uh, I decided I was going to do is I'm going to start contacting the uh, uh, the local special groups. Uh, I'm already, I'm already uh, bugging just about everybody I can to uh, to see about getting apple seed uh, uh, in front of folks. But uh, a lot of times I, there there are different groups, different areas that I don't contact, and there's no reason that I shouldn't. I mean, I should be, uh, I should keep every everybody and all the cards on the table, and uh, I think that uh, I've got the information worked out now. I'm going to contact the uh, NAACP, the local headquarters here, and then uh, the ones in Austin, and also the uh, uh, the uh, the folks for uh, any of the rest of the specialized organizations and see about uh, see about getting a speaking event uh, set up at uh, at one of them and I encourage the rest of you to do the same thing alright there's no reason that uh, that we shouldn't be speaking to all of the the folks in our area just like uh, I was telling uh, Mr. Colorado, the Appleseed Project is uh, does not belong to any political party, doesn't belong to any race, any gender. Uh, it belongs to all Americans. And that's who we should be uh, contacting, all Americans. And uh, uh, when a couple of you guys do the same thing, try contacting uh, the... Uh, NAACP or one of the uh, one of the other groups like that, and see about uh, see about uh, getting yourself invited to go and speak at one of their events. I'd be very interested in hearing how that works out. <clears throat> uh, and then uh, uh, I would like for you guys also to. Uh, you let me know. Uh, I ask you this guys this uh, quite a bit. And I, I get uh, very, very little feedback on it. So I just I end up uh, getting the guests and stuff that I want. But if you guys have any guests that you would like to, uh, that you'd like for me to talk to about getting on the show, then I'll be more than happy to uh, consider each and every one of them. You can send me an email. Uh, you can give me a call. You can send me a PM. We'll see about getting uh, the different folks. Uh, scheduled if we can. Right now I'm talking to, uh, I just got through reading a book called uh, uh, 
it's a self-defense uh, book, and uh, it was written by uh, Jerry Van Cook, and uh, he's a uh, former law enforcement and uh, a uh, martial artist in uh, New York, I believe, and it's called Real World Self-Defense. <clears throat> and I thought that the book <clears throat> did such a great job of uh, talking about uh, about self-defense that uh, I looked up, started looking at the information to contact him, and little did I realize that, uh, that like I said, the book was, was fantastic. Uh, it's one of the best books that I've read on self-defense because there is so much common sense uh, along with real-world experience that it makes it... Uh, uh, makes it a, a very uh, a very usable document. Uh, I've read a lot of different self defense manuals and books and stuff like that because I'm always trying to get uh, I always trying to get a different angle, a different view on the pie. And the way to do that is to is to keep learning, keep uh, figuring out what you're missing, and keep learning. And I got to tell you though that. Uh, nine times out of ten, when I read one of these self-defense books, I end up asking myself, or I'd I, I like to ask the person who wrote it, uh, have you ever been even as close as, uh, uh, as uh, you know, two or three blocks away from a real self-defense situation? Because a lot of the stuff that a lot of folks will tell you is stuff, not, not only is this stuff just wrong, a great deal of stuff is dangerous. It will get you killed. And uh, this book isn't like that. It's a really, uh, a really great book, and it's uh, written in 1999, so a lot of stuff is relevant. Although he does discuss some stuff about uh, uh, carrying blade, uh, pocket knives with blades less than four inches on the airlines, and we know that that completely has the question. Uh, they're not going to let you carry a pair of nail clippers. They're sure not going to let you carry any kind of a pocket knife. But the rest of the stuff is uh, is really great stuff. But here's a here's even a better uh, a better bit of information I found is that uh, Jerry Ann Cook, when I was looking up his contact information, he is the author of the uh, Max Bolin, the Executioner series. And I don't know if, how many of you folks have read that, but uh, the book started coming out, I guess, in the 70s. Uh, and when I was a kid, I was just fascinated by them. They were the fantastic story of this uh, uh, Special Forces, uh, Army Special Forces soldier who had to come home because of the death in the family. And, um, the death in the family was, uh, was, I believe, an indirect result of uh, organized crime. So he he dedicated himself to eradicating uh, organized crime. And uh, and Mr. May Cook has to be one of the most prolific uh, writers that I've met because I, I believe that there are hundreds of uh, of these books, of the different episodes and stuff. And I thought it was fantastic because, let's see, I think I started reading when I was 11 or 12 maybe. And... I thought it was fantastic because uh, I had been reading uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, 
up to that point. And I'd written, I'd uh, read all of the Tarzan series, and uh, and I'd read the uh, Pellucidar, and then the uh, John Carter, the John Carter of Mars. I'm looking forward to seeing that movie when it comes out. I'd read all of those stories, and the one thing that just frustrated me to no end with Edgar Rice Burroughs' writing is that uh, Tarzan would start out in the beginning of the story. Uh, in some kind of a conflict with the evil white hunters or maybe some of the evil African tribesmen. <laughs> and uh, and he would have the chance to uh, to do a number on them. And he would. I guess, uh, you know, this was the uh, Egg Rice Bros uh, speaking on the, the character of man. And here's a problem that I always had with it, is that those guys, the guy in the, the first chapter that almost kills Tarzan, and that Tarzan allows to live and even rescues him, the rest of the book would be uh, how that that same evil guy in the first chapter would continue to play uh, Tarzan. He would uh, kidnap uh, Tarzan's friends or love interests or uh, or continue to uh, attack Tarzan and wound him. So finally, at some, at some point near the end, he would either uh, finally off the bad guy or the bad guy would get his uh, just desserts through some natural means or the, the animals would uh, kill the, the bad guy, etc. But they taught me a, you know, a very valuable lesson, and that was if I were ever Tarzan, and this is the way I'm going to phrase this answer, if I were ever Tarzan, then I, I would have to, uh, it probably ruined me, because I'd probably end up, uh, you know, eliminating the, the even the semi-bad guys, because uh, I wouldn't want to have the, the rest of my life plagued by these guys I had let uh, get away and uh, come back to haunt me over and over. Well, uh, Mr. Van Cook, he, he takes the exact opposite uh, tack, and uh, his character is uh, the hero in this story, Mac Bolin, never misses an opportunity to eliminate uh, any of the bad guys. I mean, uh, he, uh, the body count must have been in the tens of thousands by the end of the series. So I'm hoping that, uh, that he will consent to come on and, uh, and speak to you folks about uh, real-world self-defense. <clears throat> because in his book, when he talks about uh, self-defense, and and it's not just a book about, uh, uh, you know, punching here, kicking here, shooting here, stabbing here, uh, blocking this punch, etc. It's not, it's not from that angle. There is that stuff in there, but when he's speaking, he's talking about the need for you to be able to, first of all, uh, detect the threat, to diagnose the threat. And then he talks about uh, living your life and uh, uh, conducting yourself on a day-to-day basis as a warrior. And to me, that speaks a lot of what I talked to you guys about, and that is becoming a rifleman. You know, becoming a rifleman is 
is not just shooting 210 or above on the AQT. That'll give you the patch. But becoming a rifleman is a lot more than that. Becoming a rifleman is a way of life. It's a philosophy. And that's the same thing with what Mr. Van Cook speaks about in his book, it's a, the, about becoming a warrior. Because uh, the, some of the best warriors, and uh, Sun Tzu will tell you this uh, right off the bat, and uh, uh, that is uh, the the best warriors are the ones who win the battles without fighting. When we talk about the mission at Appleseed, <clears throat> that's what we're trying to get you to do, right? We're trying to get you to win the battle uh, without fighting. And that is the uh, is fighting the soft war now, right? Fighting the soft war so that you never have to fight the hard war. That is how it was set up by the founders. Well, the folks who wrote uh, the documents that govern our nation. The the whole idea the whole idea behind having the American Revolutionary War was so that so that the, those who came after, that's us, would not ever have to spill blood again. Right? That is the way of the warrior. That is becoming a rifleman. Fighting a soft war now so that you don't have to fight the hard war later because I'll tell you right now, and I've, I've talked to Fred about this and many other people, I can tell you right now, for a fact, all those folks who uh, the keyboard commandos, all of those folks who were always telling you, man, uh, they can have my gun when they pry from my cold, dead hands, or, uh, yeah, the, uh, the government better watch what they're doing, or someday we'll rise up and blah, blah, blah. I can guarantee you right now that just like uh, Reed said in back in 1775 uh, when he was writing, and Reed was, Joseph Reed was Washington's secretary, when he was writing about the folks then, he said, when I look around me, and this was, this was at the darkest times in the American Revolutionary War, when, when everybody had just about given up hope, it looked like that we were beaten. It looked like we were never going to make it. And in the darkest times, Reed said, when I look around me now, the folks I see are the ones I least expected to see. The noisy sons of liberty are nowhere to be found. That's what I'm talking about. The folks who are always jumping up and down yelling, saying, well, you better do what we say or we'll rise up. Those folks, they're not going to be found, or worse yet, they're going. They're going to be. Uh, they're going to be in their bunker, shot full of holes, uh, and useless. He said, "When I look," Joseph Reed said, "When I look around me, the folks I see are those I least expected." 
And when I go to an apple seed, that's what I see. At the apple seeds, the majority of the folks I see there are the ones that I least expect. I, at a normal apple seed, it's not filled up from one end of the lawn to the other uh, with uh, 50 young men with short hair and uh, uh, in great physical shape and and they look like they're just on leave, etc. I see uh, kids, women, men, older men, uh, the folks who you at least expect to see uh, at a rifle marksmanship event that's also dedicated to saving the nation. So what I'm trying to tell you is the folks right now, the folks that are not willing to put themselves on the line in the soft war, don't even think that you're going to see them, that you're going to see anything at all of them if there's any kind of a, uh, a an other than soft war situation, all right? The noisy sons of liberty are nowhere to be found. The folks that are sitting in the taverns, clanking their mugs and saying, that's right, I'll show King George a thing or two. That's right, I'll show those red coats. Those guys are nowhere to be found. Instead, when I look around, I see the folks I least expected to. Those are the folks that run this nation. Those are the folks that this nation rests itself on, that rides on the backs of. And that's us. That's us. All right. uh, I had a question here saying, what was the name of the book? It's Real World Self-Defense, A Guide to Staying Alive in Dangerous Times by Jerry Van Cook. And uh, it's put out by uh, uh, Paladin Press. And uh, like I said, it's a fantastic uh, book that uh, it speaks to you in the comments. And nobody's talking down to you in this book. Nobody's telling you that they're going to they're going to tell you these techniques, but uh, you're never going to understand them because only only real uh, uh, masters and pros, like the person that are writing it, are going to be able to perform this. They, they talk to you about. He talks to you in. in uh, a very uh, common sense person to person fashion and they talk to you about uh, about the uh, uh, all the different aspects of it and uh, some of it's about the legal aspects some of it's about the psychological uh, but a lot of it is about your attitude you know they find out that the people that survive uh self-defense situations that uh, survive deadly situations are the folks who've already decided, before anything ever happens, uh, the folks that have already decided in their mind that they're going to make it through this, that they're going to survive a deadly situation, all right? And, uh, And folks who have actually, who have thought about it, who maybe have uh, gamed it out in their mind. Uh, if you read the uh, the writings of different folks like uh, like Rob Pincus, uh, one of the things that 
I think is very uh, on spot, and uh, Jerry Van Cook mentioned it too, not not quite the same way, but and one of the things that we talk about uh, here in the villa that Mark and I talk about at a Battle Road self defense uh, uh, shooting course is that when something happens to you, you don't you don't rise to the occasion. You don't uh, somehow uh, achieve your peak and you rise to the occasion and you fight your way through it. It's pretty much just the exact opposite that happens. When something happens uh, and you're immediately uh, pushed to respond, the way you respond is you sink to the lowest level of your training. You sink to the lowest level of your training. That's what's going to happen almost every single time. You're not going to uh, to to have some uh, fantastic uh, trumpet and violin music that's playing and it's going to uh, cause you to be able to lift up the helicopter and uh, karate chop your way through the bad guys. What's going to happen is you're going to sink to the lowest level of your training. All right, that's what you can really expect. All right, so so now I've given it this big run up. I hope that uh, I hope that Mr. Van Cook responds and we get him as a yes. All right, okay. Once again, uh, the phone number is three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero. You guys are welcome to call in, and uh, we'll answer any questions that you have. You can make any comments. Uh, and uh, let me remind you again that uh, each and every one of you should be uh, you should have established some type of plan that you're working on at whatever pace is good for you, but the faster the better. And that is working toward ensuring that uh, that you're making it uh, you're making your situation, your ability to survive. Uh, any type of natural or man-made disaster, that you have made it a very high priority on your list to prepare for that, all right? To make sure that you are in a position not just to survive, but to be able to provide help and leadership uh, to your fellow citizens in the event of a man-made or natural disaster, all right? All right, with that, uh, I'll keep checking the the uh, the switchboard, but uh, we're going to go ahead and get into the uh, the medicine surgery disease aspect uh, of the show tonight. And I I got to tell you I'm, I've always been fascinated by medicine and uh, historically and current. If you look at the uh, the abilities of the uh, of the medical profession now. It's absolutely astounding. And uh, you can look into the future and see that we're really not far away from uh, the the Star Trek uh, abilities. And uh, I'm always amazed at at how it was just, uh, it seemed like it was just uh, a few short years ago that uh medicine was almost uh geez, it was almost caveman in its 
its abilities and its function. Uh, and certainly, in 1775, uh, it was a lot different than it is today. Now, as far back as uh, 350 B.C., now there were still a lot of smart folks around there, but Aristotle believed that everything, all matter, everything, was made from one of the four elements, from earth, air, fire, or water. And it's not like he was that far off. I mean, there there is a, an interconnection, but he felt that, that all matter uh, was made up from these. And in the view of the Greek physician uh, Galen, who, uh, who practiced 500 years after Aristotle, the four elements explained illness and disease. You know, they could, all of the illness and disease that, that mankind would experience could be uh, explained by earth, air, fire, water. Now, uh, Galen's uh, idea or, or Galen's uh, way of doing this was that he had four elements called the humors. There were four humors. The, the human body was healthy when the humors, when the elements were in a balance. Uh, if the body seemed to have too much or too little of, of any element, then the physician had to restore the patient's balance by bloodletting, purging, which is uh, making the patient vomit, or uh, giving the uh, the patient some type of uh, uh, diuretic or a diuretic tea, either to to have them eliminated by uh, in their urine, or to cause them to have to uh, eliminate through defecation. And uh, at the same time, there was another treatment that they used, which was you would take a like a it's like a glass cup, almost like a lens-shaped device, and uh, you would heat it up, get it very hot, and then they would take the thing and press it up against the your the skin the 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 bare skin on your back, and then that would cause a you know a large blister to form. And then once the blister had formed, they would open the the uh, blisters up to release the water in the pus. And and in their mind, that was eliminating the illness, and it was pulling it out of you. Now, medical practitioners during the colonial period. Uh, in America, most commonly held the, the, the theories of uh, Holman Borhave. And these studies thought that the, the theory that disease was an imbalance of natural activities, right? Uh, that fever was like the body's attempt to keep from dying. And that digestion and circulation could be uh, explained by mechanical ideas. And boy, he recognized three conditions in the body that led to disease. There was salty, putrid, and oily. These were three different conditions. So in order, and when I say three different conditions, I'm talking about that that all the illnesses or the uh, the problems that you'd be, your body would be facing <clears throat> could, put, could be put into one of those three categories. And so... Uh, Say that uh, he had uh, 
he had determined that that your uh that your sickness was caused uh by uh, by acid uh then his remedy would be to uh to sweeten the acid uh, or he would purify the stomach and rid these impurities from you by by bleeding and by purging and these practices were were very widely used by colonial doctors in America or colonial practitioners <clears throat> and of course you know that uh, blood bleeding the theory there is that uh, you have some uh you have some form of evil, evil some form of disease that's in your blood and and for you to get better the evil has to to leave your body has to be removed and the only way to do that would be for them to to open a vein and drain that out. And most of the doctors at the time had their, their little kits uh, for uh, for bleeding you. And they'd have a ball. They'd have a uh, a knife used for bleeding. They'd have uh, like a tourniquet, and then they'd have a bowl to catch it in, catch the blood that they were bleeding out of you in. And uh, it was a very, very common practice. Uh, however, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that uh, in a lot of cases, you know, this could this could worsen the condition or even cause it to become a fatality. Uh, there's only so much blood that you can lose before you start getting into trouble because the blood also. The blood is people think about blood as just being the red fluid in you, and that it's actually uh, that the fluid is actually all blood. That they, when they see the the fluid that's pumping out of your veins, it's all blood, and that's just their name for it. That it's blood. When in reality, you know the red color, the platelets are just a very very small portion of the blood. You know, your blood is uh is moisture, it's fluid that's pumping through you that, that your body needs, all of your organs need in order to function. That's why when something happens to you, when you go to the hospital, one of the first things they do is even when you don't have uh, a wound that is uh that's causing to you to exsanguinate or or to bleed out uh, or anything like that well, the first thing they do is they'll put an IV in you, and that is to make sure that you have plenty of fluids in you. The better, more fluid you have in you, the better off you're going to be. And uh, and the inverse is equally true. The less fluid in you, if you're already sick, and uh, say you're sick and you're vomiting, etc., and you can't keep anything down, then for, for, for me as a doctor to remove even more fluid from you, by opening up your veins and draining out some blood is bad news. But uh, the physicians at the time didn't know any better. Uh, not only that, but uh, I don't have to, to tell you that they, at the time, you know, physicians didn't understand about infection. You know, they may have just they may have just used the uh, the bleeding blade on somebody. Uh, uh, a few hours before, or a day before, or a week before, and they may not have cleaned the blade. They could uh, spill out some blood on it from their last surgery. 
and they cut you and they uh, they infect you with the biological matter that's on that blade, all that's bad news. But but they didn't know any better. Now, there are approximately uh, 3,500 practicing physicians in the colonies in 1775. Now, some were trained at the uh, the first medical college that was open in America. It's called the Pennsylvania Hospital. And that opened in Philadelphia in 1768. And that was followed by King's College, which opened two years later in New York. Now, because these colleges accepted only a handful of doctors uh, for training, most American doctors uh, were, they learned their craft through apprenticeships. Uh, and they would have to be apprentices for about seven years before they were officially considered physicians and uh and you may be thinking, well, uh, how in the world do they, why would it take seven years uh, for them to to learn the uh, the five or six pages of stuff they needed to know as opposed to the 10,000 pages that we require uh, modern physicians to know? And that's because there was a lot of, uh, of medical knowledge that had to be learned and and just because they didn't have uh, a great deal of the scientific knowledge that we have today didn't mean that uh, these guys did not, uh, a great many of them, did not have uh, a good amount of skill at their trade. Uh, and while the doctors were highly trained by by the standards of 1775, the, the services they offered weren't available to the majority of the general population, you know. Uh, most of the folks lived too far away from any doctors to use the services, and other folks uh, didn't have access to doctors because of uh, social customs or their beliefs. Uh, if you, at that time period in America, there was still a lot of, uh, of social and religious caste and and a lot of times you you didn't travel back and forth through them. So so even though there was about 3,500 practicing physicians in the colonies in 1775, and, and their records indicate there was close to 2 million uh, folks in America at the time, that's still a very... Uh, a very high ratio of patients to physicians. Uh, and because of this, uh, there was generally uh, most people who who came into contact with any type of health care, they came into contact with uh, with folks who were who were listed like in the category of other than doctors, you know, uh, women were responsible for the majority of the family health care in addition to uh, the 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 myriad of other responsibilities given to them uh, housekeeping childhood child care uh, you know manufacturing uh, the clothing and uh, on and on they the women would serve as a doctor or a nurse or the the pharmacist. Uh, despite the fact that they they very rarely received any type of formal education, the stuff they learned was 
was at the time would would be stuff that had been handed down to them by by their family members and by the folks that they knew. You know what what type of uh, uh, of a root or an herb to use for a fever or for a stomachache, and this was stuff that uh, they would pick up along their lifetime and uh, and and learn to use and uh, they would uh, grow the herbs and the, the, the different plants they would need. They would grow them in their gardens or they would become adept at harvesting them uh, locally <clears throat> and then uh, and then using them uh, to concoct, concoct some type of uh, remedy for the illnesses. Now, during the American Revolutionary War, anyone with any type of medical knowledge was immediately pressed into service to help uh, tend the sick. And each regiment uh, that mustered on its own uh, physician, and usually the physicians that they brought were, were their hometown doctors. And uh, and like I said, the, they varied in their ability. Uh, Less than 300 of all of these doctors had a medical degree, and uh, only a handful had graduated from the the, the ten-year-old at that time Philadelphia Medical College. Uh, the remainder were were mostly graduates of European medical schools, or uh, or folks who had served as apprentices for, to uh, uh, physicians uh, in the colonies. Uh, but one of the things about this is that uh, at the school, while while the requirements of medical school school included uh, requiring you to have a knowledge of the classics, uh, the you know the different. Uh, uh, classical philosophical tomes. Uh, when the student was finished at the medical school, he had been exposed to plenty of theories, uh, but never to a living, breathing patient. Right? Uh, the 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 whole medical school was devoted to medical theory, and uh, which is great, but. Uh, nothing is going to teach you uh, as well as uh, the experience of interacting uh, with a with a living, breathing patient. Now, despite the very training, uh, the the physicians in the American Revolutionary War they they did a very uh, a very notable job of, uh, of attempting to save lives. Most of the physicians were competent. They were honest. Uh, they were good men, well-intentioned, but the conditions they were functioning under and the shortages in uh, the medical supplies of all types uh, placed an overwhelming burden on them, along with ignorance of, of many of the basics of modern medical practice. Now, 
Besides caring for the wounded in battle, the camp surgeon was responsible for caring for the camp disease soldiers. And the camp surgeon was uh, supposed to be constantly on the alert for unsanitary conditions in camp that might lead to disease. Now, the, the folks at this time, they didn't have a... Uh, they didn't have a good understanding of the mechanics of how unsanitary conditions caused disease in camps. But nonetheless, they understood that it was a fact. They just didn't understand how it worked. But but be under uh, uh, no illusion that they didn't understand that a dirty, unsanitary camp was guaranteed to produce casualties, non-battle casualties. Uh, they just didn't understand the mechanics of it. And the great majority of uh, the illnesses that these soldiers experienced uh, were caused by unsanitary conditions in camp. That's uh, dysentery, uh, the, the fevers, smallpox. Now, most wounds uh, were caused by musket balls or the bayonet. These are wounds, I'm saying. Uh, and in cases where the bone was damaged so severely that a limb could not be saved, then the surgeon performed an amputation uh, without any of the anesthesia or sterilization that we know today. And, and when I say the bone damaged so severely that a limb could not be saved, that a lot of times that didn't take a lot of damage. Uh, we know that uh, we, we know now that the that a musket ball hitting a bone and breaking it up and breaking it into shards and pieces we know that if you don't remove all of the the pieces of the bone that you have a very serious threat of infection. Because what you have now is you have a non-living uh, piece of biological matter, you know, trapped inside the flesh, and it will begin to uh, deteriorate. It'll, be, it's, it'll die and it'll begin to, to decompose inside the body, uh, and it will cause infection. Now, a lot of people didn't want their arms or legs to be cut off, and they would try and save them, but most surgeons knew that uh, if you got a very serious wound, that's where the ball had hit the bone and broken it into multiple pieces. The only real solution to that was going to be to amputate the limb above the wound. Uh, anything less, and believe me, they, they learned this from trial and error, anything less was almost guaranteed to bring about uh, gangrene. Uh, you read some of these stories of uh, the folks, such as uh, 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 when you read about uh, General Hankermer, uh at the uh, after the uh, uh, the name escaping me is one of my favorite battles. Uh, uh, he'd been shot in the leg. Yeah, but he didn't want to lose the leg, so he 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 wanted them to save it. And then, so they tried to save it. Then he got gangrene, and 
So they tried to amputate just the part that had the gangrene, you know, and leave him as much as they could. That didn't work. So they had to come back and amputate it again. Well, by this time, what we know now is that the gangrene had already spread. <clears throat> and I believe that they had, they had to perform two more amputations before they had they gone up uh, so high that they couldn't amputate anymore. Uh, once the wound is in the thigh had become gangrenous, then you were pretty much uh, gone without uh, antibiotics uh, and nothing left to amputate. You were pretty much a goner. And uh, <coughs> the the uh, the surgeons it, it, they they became quite adept at uh, performing these amputations. Now, uh, in, in proceeding with an amputation, usually the officers would receive some some rum or brandy, you know, when they had it available, uh, in order to try and, uh, in some rudimentary form of uh, anesthesia. Uh, but the enlisted men usually didn't get anything except... Uh, uh, like a wooden stick, and then maybe had uh, rawhide wrapped around it. And that would be pressed into their mouth, and uh, a lot of times it would be pressed in and then uh, tied in place. So they'd have this stick tied in their mouth in place uh, with uh, rawhide on it because the pain was so intense that they were going to be biting down. And uh, I guess the surgeons knew from experience that a lot of folks had bitten hard enough they'd bit their the edge of their tongues off, or they had bitten hard enough that they had actually broken their teeth or broken their jaws because of the pain. Uh, so what they would do is they would put this stick in the person's mouth, and they would have two of the surgeon's assistants. They were called the surgeon's mates. They'd hold a patient down on the table, and usually uh, the the affected limb would be would usually be tied into place. And a leather tourniquet would be placed about four fingers above the line where the limb was going to be cut. Uh, then the surgeon would use his, the amputation knife, that's the, the sharpened blade, to cut down through the flesh to the bone of the damaged limb. The arteries there would be would be moved aside. They'd be pulled out of the way by uh, tacking them away from the main area with a crooked needle. The uh, leather retractor was placed on the bone, and then it would be pulled back to separate the flesh uh, a good enough distance. It would allow the surgeon to have a clear field of operation uh, so that he could take the saw and then saw through the bone. Now, uh, the surgeons usually had uh, two or three different size saws, uh, usually a smaller saw to remove the uh, the arm bones, and then a larger saw to remove the the femur bone. And a competent surgeon could saw through the bone in less than 45 seconds. Now, i got to remind you, this is a competent surgeon with a sharp saw. And uh, if you use saws before, then you understand the theory that the more you use a saw, the duller it gets. 
the duller a saw gets, the harder it is to saw through something. All right? Now, the arteries, you know, once you've got the, the bone saw through, then you're left there with the uh, with what looks like the end of a ham. You know, you've got the bone, uh, and then you have the flesh around it. Uh, what they would do is they would <clears throat> take the arteries and... Uh, they would be flattened out and then buried in the tissue. And then when you when they would cut through the uh, the flesh, they would try and do it so that they could leave a flap of uh, the skin that could be pulled back over and then sutured. And then uh, the bandages were placed on and the patient who probably more than likely got into shock uh, because of the blood loss and the pain. Uh, And a lot of times folks would pass out from the pain and from the blood loss. Uh, I can tell you I do do a lot of work with cattle, and one of the things that I do is is I usually remove the, the horns from any of the cattle because I gotta work with the cattle and I don't want to get in the corral with uh sixty or seventy cattle with sharp horns because uh, even if they don't mean to, they can still very easily put a uh, a fist sized chunk of horn through you uh, in a heartbeat. So uh, mostly to uh to keep them from sticking their horns in each other and sticking me uh, we take off most of the horns uh, of the animals. And uh, uh, I'll try and cut them as uh, on the younger animals as close to the skull as I can. And there's even a device for the, uh, for the, for the young animals that will, it scoops out the horn uh, down below the level of the flesh and skull so that uh, when it uh, heals up, it, it's very hard to even determine that there was a horn there. But whenever I cut the horns, there's a lot of arteries in the horns. And uh, I'll cut through the horns, and there'll be a pencil-sized stream of blood that will be shooting out from each side, uh, sometimes 10 or 12 feet in the air, like two huge water fountains. And... Uh, and the animals, when they first come out of the squeeze chute, they'll be fit to be tied. And they'll be, uh, they're ready to get some payback. Uh, but that's only the first 60 seconds. Because after, uh, after 60 seconds to two minutes or so, that blood uh, pumping out at high pressure, uh, they get fairly quiet, fairly docile pretty quick with the blood loss. The same thing will happen to a human. You do the amputation, you lose a lot of blood, uh, and your your temperature usually lowered, and uh, and a lot of times the folks went into shock. Now the statistics show that only about thirty five percent of the folks who went through the a, a battlefield amputation uh, actually survived it. Now. Uh, that's due to a lot of different reasons. You know, there's, uh, like I said, the the folks doing the amputations at the time did not, uh, they didn't 
have the knowledge that taking a an instrument that uh, was covered with bodily fluids uh, from people uh, for weeks at a time and just been used on somebody else, they're using it to cut the next person uh, that it had any that, that, that there was any problems with that. All right. So there was a, a huge amount of uh, infections. There was uh, the shock from the blood loss and the pain that people would go through, and uh, and it very quickly weeded out the non-hackers. Uh, now, there are no photographs from the American Revolutionary War. However, there are photographs of uh, the American Civil War. And uh, one of the things that uh, that I saw, in, and there's quite a few books that discuss uh, medical procedures and the medical history of uh, uh, the American Civil War, uh, and a lot of photographs, too, because they the photography was developed by that time was in, uh, used a great deal. <clears throat> there are several photographs of field hospitals where the photograph, uh, one of the most horrific ones I saw, the photograph was taken uh, looking at, uh, from the outside of the building, looking at the uh, the window of a just a house, a small house. They were using it as, a, uh, as, a, as an aid station, as a field surgery uh, hospital. But what they were doing, they were performing amputations in the uh, the field surgical hospital, and they were throwing the amputated limbs out the window. Well, there had been so many uh, amputations that the window, which was about at the five five foot height mark, because the person standing inside it, you could see them only like from the chin up. Uh, so the window was fairly high. Well, the pile of amputated limbs went all the way up to the window. And then uh, the base of the pile was about 15 to 20 feet around. And they were just doing the amputations and swinging them out the window. But there were hundreds and hundreds of hands and feet and legs and arms that had been thrown out the window. Uh, it was a horrific sight. But one of the things that 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 this does is it allows great advances to be made in surgery. And the American Revolutionary War was no different. You know, in times of PISA, doctors had very few opportunities to perfect their trade, right? You get, uh, you know, once a year you'll get something that happens, uh, a wagon overturns on, a, on someone's leg and it breaks it so badly that it has to be amputated. So you do that one amputation and you only have feedback from that one event uh, that you can use to project what to do in the next instance. Well, that's not the case in a war. You know, in a war, uh, 
you have it's over and over. And you you make mistakes, but then some of the things you do right. And you get to learn uh, at a, a tremendously fast rate. You get a lot of experience. We see that going on today in Iraq and Afghanistan. We see, uh, and it also presents an interesting, uh, 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 I, I don't know how to put it, but uh, you have... We have thousands of young men and women who just uh, 10 years ago would never have made it. They would be, they would have been listed as KIAs. They would have been killed in action. So they are making it now. And in some cases, and I don't ever want to say that it's not good, okay? I think that every time a life is saved, it's good. What I'm saying is that a lot of people with very horrific injuries are being saved and uh, to to live a life uh, uh, sometimes a very uh, painful, very complex, painful uh, and sad life. But that's not up to me to decide what it is. But we have plenty of folks, too, that are living... Uh, that never would have lived uh, just 10 years ago. And that also affects the the statistics as far as uh, as the number of of folks, uh, the number of casualties on a modern battlefield. Because when you look at, uh, uh, say, a list of casualties on a modern battlefield and you have uh, 2,000 killed, well, the reality is uh, there could have been as many as uh, eight or 10,000 killed. But because of advances in science, the uh, the additional uh, uh, four to 8,000 folks who would normally be uh, KIA on the battlefield, they are no longer that. They've, they've managed to make it home. Now... <laughs> We also learned a tremendous amount uh, in every conflict that we've been in. In, in every every medical group has. Uh, there have been tremendous advances uh, made in blast injuries because of the nature of the uh, of the war, the the tactics in Iraq and Afghanistan, the use of IEDs. There have been tremendous advances made uh, in the treatment of uh, blast injuries, of impact injuries, uh, of head injuries, of spine injuries, etc. And the same thing happened uh, in the American Revolutionary War. Uh, the, The excessive exposure to injury and disease was absolutely necessary to progress in the field of medicine where where knowledge uh, of these things can only be acquired by practice and observation and the illness the injuries that occurred in the in the American Revolutionary War gave physicians an opportunity uh of witnessing uh, in one day quite often uh, more than they more than they ever could have witnessed or more experience they could have gained 
in years or their whole lifetime of uh, a peacetime medical practice. And uh, it's this experience gained on battlefields that uh, has helped give a new direction to the medical profession uh, in America, to the new nation uh, that was being grown. Now, the Army Medical Department of the U.S. Army, and uh, this is uh, this is called AMED or A M E D D, the Army Medical Department uh, of the modern American Army, comprises the Army's six medical special branches of officers and the uh, medical enlisted folks. Now, this began uh, and it was established as the Army Hospital. And this is in July of 1775. This was uh, to coordinate the medical care that was required by the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. And uh, the AMED is led by the Surgeon General of the United States Army. And this is always a Lieutenant General. And uh, the AMED is the United States Army's health care organization. This isn't a, uh, it's not an Army command. It's a health care organization. And uh, the the leader of AMED is the Surgeon General. And uh, our current Surgeon General is uh, Patricia uh, Orojo. And she's also commander of the... uh, of MedCom, that's the United States Army Medical Command. Now, uh, let me check the switchboard and see if we have any callers. Uh, as I said, you guys are welcome to call in. Uh, the number is 347-308-8790. You're welcome to call in uh, uh, at any time during the show. If you've got any questions uh, or any comments, you're welcome to call. Just uh, uh, follow the uh, the recorded instructions, and then when the call screener uh, when the call screener opens your your line and asks you a question, and it's off air. You're not on the air at that time, so so please answer him. Don't worry, we're not putting you on the air. He's just going to ask you what you want to do, and uh, he'll do it off air. And uh, just uh, just answer him and let him know. If you just want to listen, that's fine. If you want to talk, uh, that's fine. Uh, but we'll take your we'll take your calls. Uh, uh, I'll just uh, just uh, uh, I'll I'll check the uh, the switchboard every few minutes. And uh, yeah, so if you want to call, please feel free to call in. Anyway. <clears throat> Uh, I, I've talked to you guys before about uh, the unrealistic, the unrealistic portrayal of battle uh, as far as the killed and wounded. Uh, in most movies, you'll see a battle, and uh, you know the typical way that, that they'll show it. They'll see the battle that will start in the day and. The battle will keep going and keep going, and then it'll be the night time, and then uh, and your folks will be fighting in the night, and then and then it'll fade, and then uh, the sun will be coming up, and it's quiet, and the people are sitting there and they're looking out across the battlefield, and 
and they're seeing, uh, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands of dead uh, in front of their positions or across the battlefield, and and uh, you know they'll have a look of shock on their face, and and uh, it's really not uh, an accurate portrayal of it. There's uh, well, for every person killed, there's usually uh, five to ten that are wounded. And, uh, and I'll tell you right now that, uh, that guys, uh, I'm sure women too, uh, I've never been around women like that, the guys will scream and cry and they'll cry for their mothers and they'll They'll scream out for God to help them, and they'll they'll just scream, and uh, and and nobody ever all gets killed at once. I don't know. Maybe if you're uh, maybe if you're within the one mile range of a nuke, maybe that might happen. But other than that, it's very seldom that uh, there's ever a hundred percent kill. Uh, you get a few dead, and you get a huge number of folks wounded, and they're screaming, and they're and they're crawling, and they're crying, and and it's just it's ugly, and that's why they don't show it because it's ugly, it's ugly, it's nasty, and uh, and if enough people saw it, I just I just I can't imagine that that that. It would continue on, all right, because because it's horrific. So, anytime you see a movie where uh, there's a big battle and everybody is killed, it's uh, it doesn't work that way, all right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, and it's certainly uh, at least in the American Revolutionary War. Uh, your chances of dying on the battlefield were actually very slim. Uh, however, they went up a great deal uh, if you started factoring in disease or if you uh, were a captive, if you were a prisoner of war. If you are a prisoner of war, the chances of you dying skyrocketed. All right? Most of the fatalities in uh, in warfare, uh, maybe not as much now in modern times, but up up until World War II, the majority of uh, deaths on the battle on the, uh, in the during the war, not on the battlefield, the majority of deaths in the war were from disease. You had a, a much much better chance of dying. Uh, from disease than than uh, from the enemy in battle during the American Revolutionary War, uh, a great deal more soldiers died from illness uh, than from combat. Now, this is this was at the time the reality of the uh, the state of the art of medicine. And it would be so so all the way up 
uh, all the way up to and past World War One. Uh, it went so much that medical science had uh, had advanced to uh, to such a degree that it would reverse the situation, uh, as it was that military science had advanced even further. Right? Uh, what I'm saying is, is that the disease still killed a huge number of people uh, in World War One, but the advances, the technical advances in warfare had shot past it, right? Uh, That's where uh, instead of having uh, uh, 300 men uh, lined up uh, 100 yards away from 300 other men, and each side fires, so you have 600 rounds go off, and you have, uh, say, seven or eight casualties from the 600 rounds. And then they they end up uh, charging and using the bayonet and the butts of their uh, muskets, and one side or the other would uh, eventually retreat. Okay, instead of that now, you had uh, aircraft or artillery shells that could could drop uh, nerve gas or mustard or other any other type of blood-borne or uh, 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 gases and could wipe out thousands of folks uh, in, in just minutes. You had machine guns that that killed tens of thousands of men uh, in just a few hours. And in the course of a day, you had tens of thousands of men killed in just a few hours because of the advent of just a, a few machine guns. And uh, you had artillery that had uh, that had finally reached uh, the beginning of its uh, of its meteoric rise and its ability to uh, and its ability to to be lethal. Humans by World War One were suddenly much more capable of killing their fellow humans than uh, than the plagues and the diseases and uh, all of the the bugs and uh, infections that had been pursuing us throughout history. Although bugs were a very close second. Uh, I'm sure that uh, most of you know that uh, World War One, being a world war, meaning that, that folks were shuffled rapidly from continent to continent, allowed the the introduction of the Spanish flu from continent to continent and we know that uh, that the flu, the influenza then, uh, killed between 40 and 50 million people. 40 and 50 million people in World War One from the flu. Uh, we had, uh, you have documented cases of folks... Uh, Getting on the transport ships, 4,000 men on a transport ship to Europe, all in good health, all uh, ready to be patriots and fight in the First World War and, uh, and defend their nation. And when the ship arrived uh, a month later, 
there would only be uh, 300 folks able to get off the ship with the bulk of the rest of the passengers dead. And this happened over and over and over again in World War One. All right. The, the colonial physician uh, was usually one of the, the pillars of the community of this society. And uh, he, his status was probably about equal to that of a, of a uh, I'd like the minister. He was a gentleman, a scholar, and uh, you would go to him for not just for uh, medical uh, service or advice, but you would you, you would you would want to partake of his wisdom across the board. Like I said, the the colleges uh, at the time they they encouraged the physicians to uh, to do a great deal of studying on on all subjects. <clears throat> And uh, uh, a lot of the times, the the best physicians uh, of the colonial period were judged not on their ability to actually save patients, but on their their oratory uh, eloquence. And uh, uh, because, uh, unfortunately, at the time, it seemed that uh, most of the physicians actually seemed to to help speed the ill on their journey to the maker, especially if uh, bloodletting or mercury uh, was involved. Because mercury was, uh, was at the time, you had uh, the, you had the different diseases that uh, you had to deal with. You had uh, malaria and dengue fever and uh, you had venereal disease. Well, which was actually much more prevalent in Europe uh, than in the colonies, but but nonetheless, it was still uh, it was still making its rounds in the colonies, uh, and at the time there was no cure for it. They they had some things that they tried, and one of the things that they tried giving people was well, they tried to concoct a potion of uh, mercury and arsenic and they tried to keep it just on the uh, on the good side of being lethal but a lot of times they didn't a lot of times the mercury and the arsenic killed the the sufferer of venereal disease much quicker than the actual venereal disease would have uh, besides the fact that it made them deathly ill Uh, uh, now in the time of the American War, of the American Revolutionary War, there was uh, we 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 talked earlier about the four humors barrier medicine, and and I, at the same time, because of uh, of all that was going on in the war, and the uh, the the transference of ideas back and forth. There were also competing theories that were they were beginning to be talked about, both in Europe and in the colonies. Now, to, by our standards today, these were a lot of them were completely ludicrous and and without any scientific merit. But it, it seems that science at the time was considered more of an art, right? And uh, if the physicians did study anatomy, and a lot of them, a lot of them didn't, that was considered science. 
And trial and error was looked down upon while today our, our science is is based completely on trial and error. And this is this is what we call a, a empiricism and taking a, labor, a period to the laboratory and, and testing it, see if it works or not. Now, at the time, this, this was frowned upon by most physicians. The physicians, they stuck to their education. They never questioned it. They never tested it. Uh, and since there were no organizations or affiliations to enforce any kind of particular form of, uh, of medicine at the time, the colonial physicians were free to choose from uh, from anything from herbalism to Indian medicine to anything they wanted. They could try anything, and uh, and there was nobody there was nobody to uh, to check them or if they they gave you a bad dose of stuff and it killed you. There was nobody to report it to. Uh, it, it, during this time, there was a uh, one of the theories that uh, that we talked about, and that was uh, Borges' uh, theory of uh, acidity and alkalinity and tensions and relaxation. Uh, and then there was uh, William Cullen, who was a Scottish physician from the uh, University of Edinburgh, his theory was that uh, there was either an excess or an insufficiency of nervous tension that was the cause of all disease. So uh, the uh, what everybody was trying to do at this time, they're trying to distill down uh, the causes of disease down to a single source. Uh, what I'm saying is they... Uh, they're trying to say that, that all diseases, there was a commonality among all diseases, and that, that if they could find it, they could find that uh, that there was one thing that would cause or cure all of them, uh, and that that the diagnosis of any particular disease was, was really uh, totally unnecessary, because whether a patient had a, a sore throat, or uh, appendicitis, or dengue fever, or whooping cough. It really didn't matter. What mattered was balancing the nervous tension or the uh, acidity, etc. So, uh, so there was a huge deal of uh, of uh, black magic, uh, you know, of uh, uh, of different philosophies that were floating around now. The the physician John was mainly providing support and comfort. Right, he could set a broken bone. Uh, he could uh, perform an amputation. He could give you some uh, herbal medications, uh, you know, some uh, mint tea or something to calm your nerves or to soothe your stomach. Uh, uh, different. Uh, different things that they could give you. Uh, each physician usually had their own favorite types of medications, uh, uh, calomel, jalap, uh, different things that they would uh, use. Uh, calomel is actually a, a, a form of mercury. And uh, today, 
uh, we know that uh, we know that mercury is a neurotoxin, and generally, pretty much all around poison to our system. And uh, uh, mercury was used. Uh, well, actually, we can't say we're that far from it because. Yeah, almost all of you guys out there, guys and girls too, listen, if you're over 30 years old, then you probably got a pretty hefty dose of mercury uh, in your vaccinations because up until recently, mercury was used as a a preservative in vaccinations. And, uh, And it was still being injected into our children uh, after it had been outlawed from veterinary medicine, we were still giving it to our kids in their vaccinations. Uh, uh, I'm sure that most of you have heard, if you studied about the American Revolutionary War, you've heard of uh, Benjamin Rush. Uh, Benjamin Rush was the uh, he became the Army's first Surgeon uh, General, uh, and uh, uh, let's see, let's. Let's talk about uh, we'll talk about disease for a few minutes here. <clears throat> the the disease in uh, the American Revolutionary War killed probably uh, close to 140,000, uh, produced about 140,000 casualties, which was uh, it was a huge amount. Uh, smallpox being one of the one of the the worst and smallpox at the time was actually was was much deadlier than combat and uh, it could destroy uh, huge numbers of folks uh, very very quickly and it's been around uh, it's been around for hundreds of years. Uh, we won't go into the history of it now, but it's been around for a great deal of time, and and it was actually uh, used during the American Revolutionary War as a biological, as a form of a biological warfare. And it, this wasn't the first time uh, I've heard folks talk about it being uh, being used. Uh, for the first time as biological warfare in the American Revolutionary War, but it wasn't. It had been, it had been used uh, for different forms of biological warfare that have been around for thousands of years. You know, you've, you have the cases of folks uh, uh, launching diseased corpses uh, out of catapults into the cities they were besieging, uh, stuff like that. Uh, the... Uh, uh, it became evident uh, after the Revolutionary War started that that the British were attempting uh, to spread smallpox, and one of the reasons is one of the reasons is this is that uh, you know you could uh, you could be vaccinated against smallpox, and the way they would do it, they would take the uh, they would take and make a cut in a healthy person. 
And they would introduce some of the uh, they would introduce some of the uh, the fluids from some of the pus from a, a sick person into the cut, and you would get uh, the smallpox that way. But it would be a less virulent form. <clears throat> but here's a problem with that: is that while the person they had been inoculated, while they may feel better uh, fairly quickly, the problem is is that uh, they could be contagious uh for for maybe two weeks or more. Uh they could be up fine, up right walking around, but they would be contagious for during that period. Whereas if you got the disease, you got smallpox just just in a normal fashion through contact with another person, you would be contagious but usually only at the height of the infection where you wouldn't be moving around. You'd be laying you'd be on your back in bed. And the only way you'd be it, that someone would come in contact with you would be the people that were taking care of you usually. Well, through the first forms of inoculation, uh, when I was telling you about where they would uh, they would make a cut, they would introduce the uh, the pus from an infected person to it. That would that would end up inoculating the person was done to, and they would not get the most virulent form of it, but they would still be able. Uh, to infect others with it during the two-week period. So the the British at the time were inoculating folks like this and then sending them out, and they were they were spreading it. Uh, they were spreading it by uh, uh, vaccinating the civilians and sending them out among the troops, out among Washington's troops. And uh, the the smallpox, as I said, uh, it's believed to have killed uh, over uh, 130,000 of uh, uh, the colonials at this time. And the uh, Washington and the rest of the folks knew that uh, the British were doing this, and they knew that they had uh, that they had used it before during the French and Indian Wars because they had purposely introduced it to the Indians uh, in order to uh, to uh, to get rid of a lot of the Indians, right? Uh, all right. <clears throat> Uh, I'm going to read you a quick letter. This is uh, from the uh, the Spirit of 76. And this is from uh, Dr. Samuel Springer to Horatio Gates. And uh, this is on July 24, 1776. And this is after a uh, uh, a fierce... uh, a fierce outbreak of disease, and uh, the uh, at the time Congress was supposed to have established a series of hospitals, and they they did, but most of them were just on paper; they weren't actually real. They were just they were established on paper. But uh, at first, the the directors 
of the hospital system. They had to improvise hospitals as best they could. Now, for the first few years of the war, the hospitals were notoriously lacking in everything. Uh, sometimes they they had nothing, no heat, no food, no bedding. Uh, it would just be uh, like an empty building uh, with the the sick and wounded uh, just uh, packed in on the floor. And certainly there were never enough doctors or nurses or orderlies or or medicine or bandages, nothing. Uh, eventually, uh, the French get made good on supplying a lot of the stuff that was needed, but even to the end of the war, the hospitals were were a great source of shame and discontentment uh, in the colonies. Uh, Stringer writes a letter to Horatio Gates, and the, the, the title of the letter is called, In the Name of God, What Shall We Do with the Sick? Uh, all right. Well, listen. I see that. Uh, I see that we are right at the end of our time, and uh, uh, the subject of of uh, disease and surgery and medicine uh, at this time period. Like I said, it's been a very. It's always been a very uh, interesting subject for me, and I, I hope that I've. Shed a little bit of light on it uh, for you guys this evening, and uh, uh, I hope I didn't ramble too much. Uh, and we will. Uh, I hope that we get uh, Mr. Van Cook to uh, to call in uh, for an interview in the next couple of weeks. And we'll see you guys uh, in uh, one week, this next Thursday, uh, 7 p.m. Central. All right? Uh, until then, uh, please remember to uh, to include Jimmy's daughter in your, uh, in your prayers. And God bless all of you.
Take a spot 